Hey everybody, welcome to Creep Your Heart Out. I'm Monica. And I'm Nick. And this is a weekly podcast where we talk about all things wild, wicked, and weird. You might notice we sound a little different today. That's because we're on a camping trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also might notice that this episode is not coming out on a Monday. It's going to be coming out on a Tuesday because we are miles from any sort of cell phone reception whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's pretty bad. It was nice to get away, though, for a little bit. It was very nice. And also, we're recording on Monday because uh, we waited for all of the families to leave so it would be quiet so that we don't have screaming children in the background. Yeah, we kind of, I think we kind of messed up doing a camping trip on Father's Day weekend because it was mm. literally like... A lot of kids. A lot of kids. A lot of kids. A lot of screaming yeah. from basically like 5.30, 6 in the morning until about 10 o'clock at night, and then everything got quiet and... Yeah, we're pretty much the only people here right now. I can only see a couple sites with people still in them. So yeah, we are camping here this weekend because the case that we're doing, it happened here. So we are currently in Bearbrook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire. And if you're unfamiliar, uh, a couple of bodies were found in barrels in the woods in the 80s and the early 2000s. NPR did a really good... Yep. Um, Jason Moon from NPR yeah. did a podcast called the Bear Brook, Bear Brook Podcast. Uh, you can find it on Spotify or Apple or anything like that, but it's amazing. He got a lot of interviews um, with people that were actually directly involved in the case, whether being the genealogists or the police or whoever. So it's actually a really great podcast. This podcast is going to kind of just sum that up. So what we also did this afternoon was we visited a graveyard and tried to find the gravestone of the people that were found here. Couldn't find them. But we did find the trail that the barrels were found on. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Ready to jump into this? I am ready. Mm -hmm. All right. So Allenstown, New Hampshire is a small, quiet town located in southern New Hampshire with a population of only about 4,400 people. One of the attractions of the town is Bearbrook State Park, which spans over 10,000 acres and covers more than half of Allenstown and surrounding towns. The park is a, spot, is a popular spot for camping, fishing, hiking, mountain biking, swimming, and archery. Our story today starts in Allenstown in the summer of 1985. Three young boys lived in a trailer park called Bearbrook Gardens, located inside Bearbrook State Park. One afternoon, the boys were out in the woods playing hide-and-seek when one of them came across a strange blue barrel. The barrel was a 55-gallon oil drum with a lid that seemed to be loose. When the boys peeked inside, they saw a plastic bag. Curious, the friends tried to pry open the lid more and were met with a smell they described as that of rotten milk. The boys kicked the barrel over and a thick white substance oozed out of the lid. The boys left without ever fully opening the barrel. A few months later, in November of 1985, a hunter walking through the same area of Bear Brook came across the barrel and called police. Officer Ron Montpleasure took the call. When he arrived, Montpleasure spoke to the hunter, who was pale and frightened looking. The hunter told the officer he thought the barrel might contain a human body. Officer Montpleasure walked out to the site to take a look. The barrel was dumped just off the path of a snowmobile trail, near the remaining foundation of what used to be a convenience store for campers. 
He assumed that the barrel was probably that the barrel probably just contained an animal carcass of some sort as it was hunting season and the area where the barrel was discovered was a place where people sometimes discarded dead animals or trash. When he reached the barrel, Officer Montpleasure opened the lid, revealing the plastic bag the children had seen months earlier and releasing the strong smell of decomposition. When he opened the bag to see what was inside, a badly decomposed human face stared up at him. Gross. I know. Imagine finding that in the woods. Oh, it's so creepy. Immediately, Montpleasure secured the area and called for backup. Because Allenstown was such a small community and police never received more than noise complaints or occasionally domestic calls, there was never really a need for more than one officer to be on duty at a time. The town itself only employed a few officers, and so the Allenstown police had to summon the help of police from other jurisdictions to help secure the crime scene. Two bodies were discovered in the barrel, that of a woman and a young girl. The bodies had been wrapped in plastic, tied together with electrical tape. They were nude and dismembered, possibly so that they would fit in the barrel together. Due to their advanced stage of decomposition, their bodies being almost skeletal, the medical examiner estimated the bodies had been in the barrel anywhere from several months to a few years. Allenstown PD began canvassing the town, asking locals if they had seen or heard anything that might provide leads, but no one seemed to know anything about the mysterious girls in the barrel. The New Hampshire State Police took the lead on the investigation and began to try to identify the victims, thinking perhaps they might be mother and daughter. They checked to see if there were reports of a missing mother and daughter pair in New Hampshire and neighboring states, but that led them nowhere. They checked elementary school records in the state and five years of Bear Brook camping records. They sent out a nationwide bulletin with descriptions of the girls and looked for matches in the FBI dental record basis, databases. Still, they had no matches. Was no one looking for these two missing young girls? In 1986, composite sketches were made and released with descriptions of the unidentified females. The adult female, estimated to be in her mid to late 20s, was described as having been around five foot two to five foot eight inches tall with wavy light brown hair. The younger girl, who was most likely around nine or ten years old, would have been around four foot three inches tall and was thought to have had light brown or dirty blonde hair, had an unknown eye color, and was of an unknown weight. Almost two years after the barrel was discovered in Bearbrook State Park, investigators were still no closer to identifying the victims and so they released the bodies to be buried at last. The local police organized the funeral. The police chief said, quote, just because we don't know their names doesn't mean they don't deserve the same respect we do. The bodies were buried at St. Jean's Baptist Church Cemetery, laid to rest together in a single steel casket. A Catholic priest and a Methodist minister led the ceremony, surrounded by just a few town officials and local reporters. Their headstone read, Here lies the mortal remains, known only to God, aged 23 to 33, and a girl child, aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found November 10, 1985, in Bearbrook State Park. May their souls find peace in God's loving care. And that was the grave so we were looking for. Yeah, today. we went out to St. Jean's Cemetery, and we looked... Is it Jean or Jean? It's Jean. Well, it might be Jean, because it, uh, the, we noticed there's a lot of... French families buried there so I think it's primarily French 
people. So it's, it's probably as Saint Saint Jean, yeah. but it's, it's spelled Saint Jean, like J E A N. But yeah, we we went all around that cemetery and we checked and double checked and we could not find the headstone. We think maybe it was either moved or removed from the cemetery. We'll get to that later. But yeah, it was it was a really crazy crazy experience looking around that cemetery for that yeah. headstone. I was really hoping we'd find it, but anyway. We did find something else though. We'll, we did we'll find get, something we'll get else. To that later. It's pretty cool. So in 2000, John Cody, a detective with the New Hampshire State Police Major Crime Unit, was given the Bear Brook case to work. Late one afternoon, Cody decided to go out to the location where the barrel was found and have a look around. He walked around and around the area, walking out far past the spot where the barrel was found, trying to find any scrap of evidence the previous detectives might have overlooked. It was just getting dark when Cody happened upon a second blue barrel, identical to the first. Cody went back to the car to get his flashlight, and when he came back, shined the light into the barrel. His light shone on plastic, and when he pulled the plastic away, something white was revealed. Two more bodies, this time of two toddler girls, were discovered in the second barrel, just 100 yards away from the site of the first barrel. And we went out to that trail. So it's a snowmobile trail that is kind of down the road from the campsite that we're staying at. And I, with the very little cell phone service that I had, went online and looked up a map of where the barrels were found. And none of the roads were labeled, uh, but I was able to compare it to Google Maps and kind of pinpoint where it was based on the shape of the of the roads and the streets. It was yeah. really crazy. We were we were driving around for a while, yeah. and we eventually we found the trailer park that the boys we mentioned at the beginning of the story. We found the trailer park where they lived when they found the barrel, and we drove around that trailer park. It was really scary. People there looked like they probably wanted to kill us. <laughs> but we we drove out of there and we found the snowmobile trail. We kind of just drove up and down the road and we found it. So we parked and went down there and we found the spot yeah. we believe is where the second barrel we was We kind of had to do a little process of, of elimination yep. because then as we got closer, we had to look at the um, the photos that the police had taken in the 80s. And like, okay, but there's that tree right there. There's like a little stone wall there and then there's a rock. And then we were, we, we couldn't find the exact location of the first barrel. Yeah, we but have we an idea found, of where it was, but we yeah, found the, the exact, exact location. We're pretty sure it's the exact because location of the it, second barrel. The, it was dumped next to this rock, and, and then there was like this, like, what was like a split certain kind of tree. tree, and then there was like a split tree, and so we had to kind of position ourselves, look at the photo, and then there it was. And we took a picture of it, so we will yeah. post that on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. But it, yeah, it was it was crazy, and it's once, kind of spooky. Out it there. was spooky, and we were there obviously during the daytime. We just did this a couple hours ago, but. Yeah, standing in that spot, was I started to get really creeped out because we found this, the location of the second barrel first and took a picture of that. And then we walked down the trail a little bit. And the trail's pretty overgrown. Mm -hmm. But um, we kind of estimated where we thought the second, or the I'm sorry, the first barrel was found. And it was off the path a little bit. I didn't wanna, really want to walk out there. And then I started to feel really creeped <laughs> out. So we kind of like hauled ass out of there. And we also found, I had mentioned there was the remains of a convenience store the as far as we know the only marker of where the convenience store used to be because it burnt down we'll talk about that later as well the only marker is an old telephone pole that's near the trail and we think we found that too 
Yeah. That was that was freaky. It was really freaky. Would I go back? Probably not, to be honest with you. It was it was surreal being right there where this yeah, happened. Especially because it's such a high profile case. Oh yeah. And, um yeah, I grew up kind of around here and I remember when mm-hmm. he first moved so I grew up like west of Concord. But when I first moved there, kids would talk about uh, people finding bodies in barrels and I always thought it was like an urban legend that like young boys would tell each other. And then I got older, I was like, oh, no, that, like, legitimately happened. Mm-hmm. And then Clough State Park, which was near where I grew up, another bo- a body was discovered, completely unrelated to this. It was a total unrelated mm-hmm. thing. But it seems to happen a lot in New Hampshire. People get rid of bodies in, in oil barrels and dump them in state parks. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. I don't know. But New Hampshire is something, what, like 70, 80% forest, so. Something like that, yeah. It's some crazy yeah. amount. And we were just talking earlier, we, you know, back in around when this happened in the 1980s, People dumped a lot of crap out in the woods. I, I'm sure it still happens today, but I think it happened a lot more back yeah. then. People would abandon cars back there, oh, yeah. barrels, obviously, would all find kinds stuff, of trash. Stuff like that, the woods growing up, you know? Because mm-hmm. if you listen to the NPR podcast they did, they talked about, like, you know, how could how could uh, these two barrels be so close to each other and then remain there for years and get found years apart? Because people dump stuff in the woods all the time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have been uncommon in the 80s, especially these little boys that were, like, cycling around or they were out in their ATVs or something, and, you know, you would see trash and and things all over the place, you know, so... Yeah, and people probably didn't think twice about it, I think the woods are a lot cleaner now than they used to be. You know, know? and and who knows if if that barrel would have been reported by the hunter when it was because remember it i believe it was standing upright and the little boys kicked it over and he mm-hmm. probably start walked past it and saw something in there and that's why he checked it out and maybe if it had been mm-hmm. standing straight up when he had passed it by he probably wouldn't have thought to look inside of it so mm-hmm. who knows yeah. people were shocked and appalled at the discovery of the second barrel a full 15 years after the first if it was only a mere 300 feet away How did they miss it the first time they searched the area? Was it even there when the first bodies were discovered? Were police just not thorough enough during the initial search? Several factors come into play at this point in the story. Firstly, 300 feet is almost the length of a football field. The section of the park where the barrels were found is extremely dense woods, and it would have been impossible to see 300 feet away from the site. To search that area thoroughly enough to find that barrel, It would have required a team of searchers side by side combing the area. It would have been like finding a needle in in a haystack. Allenstown Police Force was small and wouldn't have had the manpower. At any rate, officers were already concerned with the first barrel and were not anticipating finding another, and so they weren't looking for one. Lastly, investigators' attention had been divided, for another murder had taken place just a few miles away the day before the first barrel had been reported to police. In 1985, a welder living in Hooksett, New Hampshire, was shot to death while working in his backyard. His friends, who were working in his barn, heard the shot and came out to see the man lying in a pool of blood. He had been shot in the chest. This incident occurred on a Saturday. The following day, on Sunday, the first barrel was discovered. In New Hampshire, an average of 15 murders occur each year. Which seems like a lot to me. Yeah, for all right? not very populated we are, and I'm sure there's more now. Yeah, and I'm sure you, you, you know, maybe we don't hear about some of the ones that happen more up north, because we live in southern New Hampshire, and up north is kind of crazy country up there. There's some crazy people yeah. some, sometimes in the woods in New Hampshire. Yeah, southern New Hampshire's Boston's trash can, basically. Basically, so. yeah. <laughs> for state police, two cases had been opened just miles away from each other in the same weekend. 
Police were in over their heads and investigators were spread thin. Most of the focus was turned onto the shooting of the hookset man. The bodies found in the barrel in the first barrel could not be identified and no leads had been generated and so no suspects could be brought in. Police were busy interviewing people in Hookset, and a lot of people seemed to know a lot of things about the man who was murdered. They knew he was a ladies' man, he had a black book, and generally gave a lot of reasons for people to dislike him. The two cases divided police, and at one point, police considered whether the cases were connected in any way. But it turned out it was just a coincidence, and the Bear Brook case and the murder of the Hookset man could not be linked in any way. For a while, both cases went cold, and police assumed the man was killed by a stray bullet from a nearby hunter. Then, in 1999, a private investigator hired by the state was able to identify the man who shot and killed the Hooksit man. He was later apprehended, confessed, and was convicted of murder, leaving investigators to focus their attention on the first, and what they thought only, blue barrel found in Bearbrook State Park. Let's bring our attention back to the second barrel and the bodies inside them. This barrel, which we had mentioned earlier, contained the bodies of two toddler-aged females. One of the girls was estimated to be around three years old, and the other only two. Both victims were skeletal and wrapped in plastic, and had died of blunt force injuries to their heads, just like the first victims. Investigators wonder whether all four females were related. Could it be a mother and her three kids, brutally murdered and hidden together in the woods, the killer hoping they would never be discovered? DNA testing showed that the adult female and the oldest and youngest children, the, two, eight, uh, the nine-year-old and the two-year-old girls, were related maternally, but the adult female actually being the mother of the two. The middle child, the three-year-old, was unrelated to the other victims. It was speculated that she could possibly be a stepchild or that she was adopted. In 2000, Investigators yet again talked to locals and searched databases and still yet again got no leads and were no closer to identifying the victims, let alone had any sub suspects. The discovery of the second barrel did not help move the case any further along and only created more questions about who the victims were and what happened to them. The case went cold. In 2012, the case was brought to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NCMEC for short, but there was nothing in their database about a missing adult female and three children. In 2015, computer-generated images of the victims were released to replace composite sketches and their descriptions were updated. The three-year-old child, who was unrelated to the other victims, was shown with dark hair and had an overbite that might be noticeable. The youngest child was shown with shoulder-length dirty blonde hair and a gap in her front teeth. The images were more lifelike and investigators hoped that someone would finally recognize them after all these years of searching. The case was at a standstill yet again for a while until a geologist at the University of Florida by the name of George Kamenov had an idea. Radioisotope testing can identify the type of environment a living thing existed in by identifying environmental isotopes, which are stable and naturally occurring. Plants and animals absorb these isotopes through their diet, therefore carrying around with them an imprint of their environment. Kamenov got involved with the case when a forensic anthropology student at the university approached him one day asking if the same technique could be applied to modern cold cases. 
He used radioisotope testing on the bones, teeth, and hair of the victims to narrow down where they might have lived prior to their murders. One isotope found in the adult female showed an isotope that came from leaded gasoline. From the 1920s to the 1970s, cars used leaded gasoline and the cars essentially sprayed lead into the environment. In America, gasoline came from Mississippi and in Europe, it came from Australia. Because the gasoline was found was from two different environments, the isotopic signature of the lead was different. Testing on the victim from Bear Brook matched the isotopic signature of the gasoline from Mississippi, indicating she was from America. They were also able to rule out Canada and Mexico. Probably because they, I imagine it maybe had something to do with the levels that are of lead that were legal in Canada and Mexico were different it's in the United States. Yeah, possibly. I'm, I'm thinking that might yeah. be why, how they ruled out Canada and Mexico. The isotopes could also show how close or far away from the coast the victims lived because of the oxygen isotopes from water. The three victims who were related had isotopes that told they were coastal and were likely from around New Eng- the New England area down to West Virginia. The unrelated child was from a different area, further inland, probably from around upstate New York. Isotopes from hair can provide records of the past, depending on the length of the hair. The hair from the adult victim showed that she had been living near the area of Bear Brook in the last few months before her death, but prior to that, she had been living in a colder climate, either more north or further out west. Testing on all of the victims showed that all four were together the last two weeks to three months of their lives, but the mother and daughters were from one area of the country and the other and the unrelated girl from another. Though this testing could help provide answers as to where the four victims had been living, it could not identify them, and the case came to a halt once more. What a frustrating case. Yeah. I mean, they've been working on this, what, for since the second girl was found 15 years? Yeah. It was like they would, they seem like they would find, you know, even like an inch, like something to grasp onto, and then it would just lead nowhere. Yeah. It's just crazy. But then as technology gets better, you know. Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know if you could hear that. There was a kid screaming. Yeah, there there are, apparently are still children here. <laughs> so now we're going to we're going to kind of take a different path here. So we are going to go back to 1999, New Year's Eve in California. A woman named Elaine was getting ready to host a New Year's Eve party at her home when she got a call from her close friend, Unsoon Jun, asking if she could bring her new boyfriend to the party. Unsoon was a Korean immigrant who grew up in California. She was a chemist and had a love for pottery. Elaine knew her friend had a hard time dating. Being an immigrant herself, she knew how lonely and vulnerable a person could feel. So when Unsoon asked if she could bring her boyfriend, Elaine was excited that she had finally met someone she liked. When Unsoon and the man arrived, Elaine noticed right away that something was off about the man. They had driven up in a dirty old white van and the man who approached the door with Unsoon was unkept-looking, balding, and, mus- and he was a mustachioed man with piercing blue eyes. Mm. At the party, Elaine tried getting to know the man. He told her his name was Larry Vanner, and he was a retired colonel from the army. He claimed he owned, <clears throat> excuse me, he claimed he owned several properties up and down the West Coast, and that he had once worked for the CIA and made many other claims about himself. Elaine had a bad feeling about the man right away. Days after the party, 
Unsoon called and asked if and asked Elaine what she thought about Larry. Elaine told her she thought the man was sketchy and to be careful. This angered Unsoon, and she she argued that no one wanted her to be happy. She hung up, and that was the last time Elaine spoke with her. For the next few weeks, Unsoon began sending letters to her family, saying she wanted nothing to do with them anymore. In 2001, Vanner moved into Unsoon's house, and later in the year, they got married, though not officially, at a Star Trek-themed wedding. I want to know what that looked like. Probably like Star Trek. I mean, <laughs> were they dressed up as characters? Were they married on a spaceship? Like, I, I feel like I, I don't think know. they were married on a spaceship. Well, it could have been, like, they decorated her room to look like a spaceship. <laughs> Imagine she was, like, Spock and she was somebody else. I, I don't know any of the characters. I only know Well, this Spock guy is. just sounds like a fucking weirdo. Yeah, he is a weirdo. Sounds like he's very manipulative, too. I mean, oh, absolutely. And he gets worse. They always get worse. Yeah. We always say that. I'm going to print that on a t-shirt. It gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> but wait, it gets worse. Right. Took you out a bad idea. I like it. Right? <laughs> well, in 2002, Unsoon and a friend had planned a trip together. When Unsoon didn't show up to leave on the trip, the friend got concerned and tried calling her, but there was no answer, and Unsoon would not return her messages. A few days later, the friend finally got a call back, but it was Vanner saying Unsoon was away visiting her dying mother in Virginia and that there was no way of reaching her. For weeks, the friend attempted to get in touch with Unsoon and Vanner kept making excuse after excuse as to why she wasn't there. Until finally, the friend called Vanner and told him she was going on a trip and if there wasn't a message from Unsoon waiting for her when she returned, she was going to call the police. The friend ultimately ended up calling police, who brought Vanner in for questioning, and again, Vanner made his excuses as to why police couldn't talk to Unsoon. They ran his name, Lawrence William Vanner, and the date of birth he had provided for them through their database, but nothing came up. Vanner allowed himself to be fingerprinted, and the fingerprints came back showing a criminal record, but not for Larry Vanner. The prints came back as belonging to a list of known aliases, the earliest being Curtis Kimball. His file came up showing that in 1989, Kimball had been convicted of child molestation and abandonment and was sentenced to three years in a California prison, of which he served a year and a half and was let out on 12 years parole. Or, I'm not sure if that's accurate, right? I don't know. 12, 12 years of parole? I thought parole was you got out of jail early, but you finished the rest of your sentence on parole. I don't know how that works. If you know how that works, let me know, because I don't. Maybe it was because this was 12 years later, so he was uh, a parolee Yeah. still, because he had, he had actually yeah. skipped parole. We'll get to that. So anyway, on the day of his release, Kimball skipped town, violating his parole. When he was brought in by police to be questioned about Unsoon's whereabouts, he had probably given his fingerprints willingly because he didn't think the prints would come back so quickly, not knowing the database was now handled by computers. He probably thought the process would take days and he would be able to leave town again. After this, Kimball would not talk to officers and requested an attorney. Because he was on parole in California, police could legally search Kimball's property. A detective went over to the home Kimball was sharing with Unsoon. In the back of the garage, the detectives found a sort of crawl space room in an unfinished part of the house. Inside was an enormous pile of cat litter about three feet tall and five feet long. Detectives 
uncovered the partially dismembered mummified remains of Unsun Jun. Jeez. Yeah. In cat litter. In cat litter. He probably did it so that A, it would probably dry up the body, and B, it would prevent it from smelling. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty disgusting. Also, how much cat litter would you need to make basically like a three by five pile of cat litter? A lot of cat litter. That had to, that, that's expensive. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of cat litter. So initially, Kimball pled not guilty in the murder of Unsun Jun, but at trial, he stood up and asked to change his plea to guilty. He was sentenced to 15 years to life for this crime. Why would he plead guilty, you might ask? Well, since discovering he had a past criminal history, detectives decided to take a closer look at his conviction from 1989 for the molestation and abandonment of a child. He was trying to avoid to avoid detectives digging up any more of his crimes. In 1986, Kimball was going by the alias Gordon Jem- Jensen. He and a five-year-old girl named Lisa, who he claimed was was his daughter, were living in Holiday Host RV Park in California. An elderly couple living in the park befriended Jensen and Lisa. Jensen told them that Lisa's mother had died of cancer when she was just a baby and that he was having a hard time raising her on his own. The couple told Jensen that their daughter was not able to have children and that she would be interested in adopting the little girl. They made arrangements for Lisa to stay with the couple's daughter and her husband for three weeks, and if the arrangement worked out, they would come back to the RV park with an attorney and make the adoption official. During her stay, the family quickly realized that Lisa showed signs that she had been molested and tortured by Jensen. They said it was something like uh, Lisa was trying to touch the husband like inappropriately or something like that. And so they they were kind of like, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that to your dad. And so it kind of came out that uh, Jensen or whatever the fuck was, you know, training training. her to do that kind of shit. Yeah, it's 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 so, so bad. And she's only five. The family tried contacting Jensen at the RV park to sign over custody of Lisa but he had vanished. The family went to police, who put out a warrant for Jensen's arrest and took Lisa into protective custody, and later she went on to be adopted. Police would be hard-pressed to find Jensen. All of the identifications he had left behind at the RV park were fake, and his license plate was registered to a motel room. Police were able to pull a fingerprint from the park, and it came back matching a Curtis Kimball. Kimball had been arrested previously for drunk driving with Lisa in the car with him, but they couldn't find more information about him. Then, in 1988, police arrested Jensen for driving a stolen car. They fingerprinted him, and they realized that Jensen and Kimball were the same person. In 1989, Kimball was sentenced to three years in prison for the molestation and abandonment of Lisa. Authorities suspected that Lisa was not actually Kimball's daughter, but that he had picked her up somewhere and was using her as a sex slave. God. I know. Authorities took a blood sample from Lisa and planned to make Kimball take a paternity test. However, Kimball took a plea deal to avoid trial, and so the paternity test was never conducted until he was apprehended for the murder of Unsun Jun. Police were able to determine he was not Lisa's father. Kimball never revealed to police where Lisa had actually come from and never told him the truth or never told them the truth about his past. 
and in 2010, while he was in prison for the murder of Unsoon Jun, Kimball died of pulmonary emphysema and lung cancer, and his secrets died with him. Not fair. I know. It's terrible. For decades, police tried finding Lisa's true identity. They looked through endless missing persons reports from around the country, doing DNA tests on families of missing children, but they came back with no matches. They looked through Kimball's records, through his fake names and social security numbers, trying to find some shred of proof of truth. Detectives tried genealogy sites like 23andMe to see if they could find anyone related to her. They were able to find some fourth and fifth cousins related to Lisa, but no one had any information on who Lisa's parents were. They went through birth and death records, social media, etc., and still could not find any information about the girl's family. And I had read too, and it was frustrating because they didn't know where she came from, mm -hmm. so they couldn't be sure where to look for her. I'm assuming her, uh, Lisa, as an adult, was involved with this search for her family. Um, I don't know if she was involved in the search, but I know they were contacting her and everything. I think her... I believe her name is still Lisa. I don't think she changed her name or anything like that, but they didn't reveal her last name because of privacy things. Mm -hmm. But uh, apparently she's happy, healthy. She's married and has three children now. Mm -hmm. And she did talk to some of the detectives and, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get to that. So until eventually detectives decided to go with DNAadoption.com, a, <clears throat> a site that helps adopted people find their birth parents. They used genetic genealogy to follow Lisa's family tree, sifting through 25,000 relatives. And I think it, they said it took something like 10,000 man hours. Thank God. Yeah, to go through all of those 25,000 people. And they had, they had, you know, some actual genealogists, and then they had some people that were just kind of like hobbyists, like, you know, internet searchers, those types of people. Mm -hmm that just went around and kind of tried to contact certain people and find out if they knew anything about her or somebody that looked like her or anything or somebody that had gone missing around the time that she had gone missing. Mm -hmm. That was crazy. Distant relatives started helping in the search. And finally, in the summer of 2016, 30 years after Lisa was abandoned at the RV park, they were able to track down Lisa's mother and learn her real name. Lisa's real name was Dawn Bowden, and she was from Manchester, New Hampshire. Queen City, baby. Queen City, baby. That's where we live. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is so crazy. I I knew about this case because we had listened, you know, we watched all the NPR stuff and we listened to the podcast before, <laughs> but I didn't remember that she was from Manchester. It's so crazy. And I forget which street, they mentioned which street they had lived on and we could probably oh. find it oh there's a chipmunk oh he's attacking yeah. us these the chipmunks chip are ballsy here. yeah they're really ballsy. they just like walk right up to you it's yeah. really crazy i actually screamed and jumped out of my chair earlier today because one came about three inches away from my foot you screamed and jumped out of, here, out of your chair three times today because it's either a bug or a chipmunk <laughs> it's been more than three times for a bug it was once for a chipmunk it was at least 10 times because of a bug i'm not the camping type i don't know why i'm camping yeah, you love camping. You're always like, let's go camping, let's go camping. And then we go camping. You're like, oh, there's bugs everywhere. I yeah, like, yeah we'll camping. fuck the bugs. <laughs> we'll, we'll go to a bug-free campsite. Next yeah, time. and a campsite with no children. So we'll just stay home. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> fine. So anyway, this is where we start to connect the Bearbrook victims, the murder of Unsoon Jun, and the abandoned child known as Lisa. 
When detectives found out Lisa was from New Hampshire, they contacted authorities there. They were able to interview relatives they had tracked down with genetic genealogy. Police interviewed Lisa's great-grandfather, who told them he had last seen Lisa's mother, Denise Bowden, in Manchester on Thanksgiving Day, 1981. Denise was 23 years old at the time, and Lisa was just six months old. Her boyfriend at the time was a man named Bob Evans. Police showed the grandfather a picture of Kimball, and he recognized him as the same man that called himself Bob Evans. The family never saw Denise or Lisa again after that day, but they never reported them missing either, assuming they had just fallen out of touch with each other. Police suspected that the body of the adult female found in the barrel at Bearbrook could be Denise Bowden, but DNA results did not match. However, Kimball's DNA matched the middle child found in the barrel, the three-year-old. He was her father. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. oh, it's so crazy. Police were confident that Kimball killed Denise, but did not recover her remains. So who were the other three victims in the barrels? To find out, detectives needed to dig a little deeper into Kimball's, Kimball's past. They were able to find out that Kimball, using the alias Bob Evans, had moved to Manchester in the late 1970s and worked as an electrician at the old Wombeck Mill building by the river. Fun fact, I used to fucking work in that building. Yep. I used to fucking work in that building. And he was like on a team of people who went in there basically after they stopped using the mill buildings for whatever kind of factory textiles, textiles and, stuff. and stuff they went in there and well he was in there basically disassembling all the electrical units and everything they were like clearing it out cleaning all clearing all the machinery out clearing all of the electrical things out they were basically gutting the whole mm -hmm. building he was part of the team of people that did that which is so crazy because i used to work in that building mm -hmm. a couple of years ago and i know that building inside and out it's just so insane. It just, this just hits so close to home. It's yeah, just yeah. crazy, you know? I, uh, I, I've taken a couple uh, vocal lessons because... Uh, was, was it in that building? It was in. It was at NH2 into the Wombeck Mills because I was... Uh, yeah, it's like up on the third floor or something, right? I used to yeah. work on the first floor. T tired of blowing my voice out. Yeah. I was thinking punk rock forever. And I remember I, I, those... I sprung for a few vocal lessons, but they were right in the Wombeck Mills. Do they have those big room... Upstairs, did they have those big rooms with the big tall ceilings? Yeah, like and they get, were really good they, for like. They had the old machinery up there, like almost like museum pieces of machinery. Uh, I actually never went in any of the rooms up there. Yeah. I uh, I really I worked on the first floor. I never really went to any of the other floors, and I didn't go in any of the other rooms. But yeah, it's just so crazy that he was in there, and you know. Yeah. Evans met Ed Gallagher, owner and operator of the Bear Brook store in the park, only about twenty-five minutes from Manchester. Evans had done some electrical work at the Bear Brook store. The store burned down in 1983, and so only the foundation remained. I wonder but, how it burned down. Electrical fire? Hey, maybe it could have been. Uh, so yeah, it burned down. But uh, Gallagher allowed workers to dump waste like old barrels on his property, which was technically not in Bearbrook State Park, but bordered the northern edge of it. The two barrels with the victims in the in them were found very close to the foundation of the store, and Evans would have been familiar with the area. And remember, the victims had been wrapped up in plastic and electrical wire or tape. I, I don't remember if it was electrical tape or wire, further linking Evans to the crime. But even if they could be sure that they had their man, detectives still could not identify the victims. To identify them, 
They needed to find out the true identity of the man with so many aliases. Again, detectives turned to genetic genealogy to find out if he had any living relatives who might know his true name. Police were able to track down a woman named Diane, who was related to Evans. They gave her the rundown, the story of Lisa being abandoned, the story of Unsoon Jun's murder, and the unknown victims found at Bear Brook. Detectives told Diane that Evans might be her father and asked her, asked her to provide a DNA sample. Sure enough, Evans was Diane's father, and his real name was Terry Peter Rasmussen. Finally, have a name for the guy. Rasmussen. Rasmussen. Sounds a lot like Rasputin. What's Rasputin? Uh, the Russian witch doctor. Oh, he was, he was, yeah. He, they thought he was like magic, had like magic powers, but some people say he was like evil or he was like demonic or something. Oh, I don't know. You know, you know who this guy reminds me of? This guy, uh, Rasmussen. He reminds me of Count Olaf. Yeah. Because he's always just in a different, a really, dis- he's really in a different disguise, a different name. Yeah. And he's just like terrorizing, like you know, New Hampshire and California. It's just insane, you know. Yeah. And and you know, people know him. You know, people were saying they were like, "Oh, we we knew Bob Evans really, really well. It was so crazy that he could have done this and all this oh, stuff." And always, I'm sure they always say that. I'm, and I'm sure you know, people that had met him when he was under his other aliases probably said kind of the same things about him you know and it's just yeah. it's just crazy but it's all the same guy you know well yeah i mean think about people who are capable of doing absolutely heinous acts like that are expert liars and they can just mm-hmm. they can they can paint themselves in any way they want you know? oh absolutely yeah it's crazy normal functioning people can't lie like that no they just can't no. you can see the guilt on their face absolutely people like psychopaths like him yeah you know mm-hmm. well diane did not know her father growing up he had left the family when she was just a child. With his true identity revealed, police were able to finally uncover Rasmussen's past life. Terry Rasmussen was born in 1943 and grew up in Colorado and Arizona. He dropped out of high school in his sophomore year and joined the Navy in 1961, where he was trained as an electrician and served for six years. In 1968, he married Diane's mother and moved to Arizona to start their family, but the parents fought constantly, and around 1975, Rasmussen left the family. Diane recalled that a few months later, in 1975 or 76, Rasmussen returned to the house to visit the children, and he had a woman with him. Could she have been the mother of Rasmussen's daughter in the barrel? In the mid-1980s, after Rasmussen left New Hampshire with Lisa, but before the RV park, he was seen driving with a woman and children in the car, but the number of children was unknown. The woman and children were never identified, but their whereabouts were unknown. Who knows if they had ever become victims themselves? On June 6, 2019, a press conference was held at the New Hampshire DMV to finally announce identities of the victims in the barrels. Authorities were able to identify them using online forums of people looking for long-lost family and friends. Someone on the site was looking for their long-lost half-sister. Authorities contacted the woman, who said that her half-sister had been married to a man with the last name Rasmussen. So that can't really, that can't be a coincidence. No. It's, it's just crazy. It does not sound like a common name whatsoever. Mm-mm. 
Scientists were able to extract DNA from the rootless hair of the victims and create a match to the family looking for their sister. The victims' names are as follows. The adult female was Marlise Elizabeth Honeychurch. The oldest child was Marie Elizabeth Vaughn. And the youngest child was Sarah Lynn McWaters. The little family had last been seen on Thanksgiving Day in 1978, when Marlise and her children visited their mother's house for dinner and brought along Terry Rasmussen. That sounds familiar, right? Remember in 1981, uh, what was her name? Uh, Denise Bowen, yeah. who had Lisa. Yeah. Had uh, Lisa was like six months old, and yeah. they had gone to her family's house on yeah. Thanksgiving Day with Rasmussen. So was that like And then she disappeared afterwards? I don't su- know. Uh, Sud, I can't say her name, but the Korean girl. Uh, Unsoon. Unsoon. They yeah. went to her friends and family's house. On a uh, holiday. On a holiday. Yeah. So is that this guy's MO? He beats their whole family that kills him? I have no idea. It's it's just crazy. I don't know if it's a coincidence or I just, don't think so. You know. It sounds like almost like an MO. Like he, yeah. Maybe it's like a control thing for his that sick fuck, you know? Like he just, mm-hmm. he wants meets to meet, the family. meets the family, shakes their hands, and then a short time after kills the, the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you going to kill me? I bet your family. Uh... Probably not. You met my family many times, and I haven't killed you yet. Yeah, but maybe it's like you young know, be like, like, I'm setting you up. Yeah, mm-hmm. tenth mm-hmm. time, it's like that's it. <laughs> right? Maybe. Edward Bearbrook. Hmm. I am not going to kill you. You're okay. fine. All right. Cool. Anyway, an argument ensued between Marlise and her mother, and Marlise and her children left with Terry, never to be seen again. After 34 years. The mystery of the woman and two of the children found in the barrels at Bear Brook State Park had finally been solved. Unfortunately, the middle child victim and her mother has still not been identified. Denise Bowden has never been found. And we will never know if Terry Rasmussen had taken any other victims, for he died in prison with his secrets. Well, That's a crazy one, that's, right? That's probably one of my... I don't want to say favorite, but we listen. Most interesting. Yeah, I mean, because it hits close to home. You know, it really, we, we it literally does. I mean, here. we live 25 minutes away, and, you know, we know people that live in Allenstown, yep. and it's crazy. I mean, I don't I don't think I really know anyone that grew up here, but still, yeah. I mean. Like I said, we always, when I was in grade school, I was people like, oh, you know, it was because, you know, like, uh, urban legends get around. Uh, it was always like, oh, there's bo- like in every state park, there's bodies and barrels and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And we just scare the crap out of ourselves when we were kids. And, but as a kid, I, you know, in the background, I was like, oh, it's just You assumed urban. it's like, a, like probably a just, legend or, yeah, you know. Yeah, because I, I was. Uh, just a story. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was in grade school in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, yep. So these things were kind of like buzzing around, but it wasn't like a, these were still mysteries at that time. So, you know, word would get out. And all of a sudden, I'd be like, oh, there's, there's all these bodies and barrels and there's like a boogeyman living in the woods who will put yeah. you in a barrel and it's just and then you know i never really thought about it until until the Bear brook podcast came out and i was like mm-hmm. yeah i was P- like oh, and then we, we listened to it during the quarantine yeah we did and, around uh, a campfire last year it was it, awesome. i was just totally like sucked up at into your mom's it. house which yeah. is also close by here i was like so sucked into it i was just like oh my god like this is this is crazy like this is the stuff that i heard about as a kid you know yeah, it's insane, and and definitely you guys go check out that podcast again. It is, it's NHPR put the podcast on. It's called it's just called Bear Book Podcast. It's hosted by Jason Moon. It's amazing because he's a reporter for NHPR, and he really, you know, he went out to the sites. He spoke with the police and the detectives, and you know, people who 
knew the victims and things like that. It's really, really crazy. And uh, he actually got to visit the gravesite, but I believe it, that was in 2018. And since the discovery, since they identified three of the victims and their, their family, I think they probably moved those bodies. They probably gave released them back to the family now that they've been identified. Because uh, we searched that graveyard up and down and we could not find that yeah. gravestone. So I'm assuming because they just they just announced this two years ago. So, you yeah. know, once they announced it, they probably moved them. So, yeah. which is, is good. It's great for the family that they finally have some closure. You well, know? I, I wanted to call the church, uh, the St. John or St. Jean Church. I feel like that's... Just ask them, like, hey, we're doing a podcast for educational purposes. Do you know where those, the, un- the unnamed grave, where they went? Not to see it, but just to tell people listening, you know, where they are now. Yeah, because um, it would have been cool if we could have gone out there and put flowers on the graves or yeah. something like that, you know. But, yeah, we couldn't find them. And I don't I don't think they ever mentioned where, or maybe they didn't, I don't remember, but where um, uh, Marlise and her children were from. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they were from New England, maybe, or Maine, or something like that. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so that was the Bear Brook race. I hope you guys enjoyed that. that it's it's really crazy being out here, you know, just miles away from where all this happened and or where a lot of it happened. Yeah. Uh, it It's insane, and it was insane being out there in the spot where that second barrel was found. It's yeah. just... It was eerie. Oh, it was so eerie. It was crazy. But, uh, yeah, I took a picture, and I will... Post it on the website, so or on the Instagram, you know that thing. So, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed that. So, if you like, in the meantime, you can follow us on social media at creepyourheartout underscore pod for Instagram. Twitter is creepyho underscore pod. Yes, creepyho underscore pod. And if there are any stories that you think we might be interested in that you'd like to hear on the podcast, or if you have your own personal story, you can email us at creepyourheartoutpod at gmail.com. We will see you all next week on Monday for our regular full-length episode. Bye, creepies. Creepy later.